Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvellous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart. And the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. Last night as I slept, I dreamt marvellous error that it was God I had here inside my heart. (coughs) Words by Antonio Machado. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you slept well. I hope you breakfasted well. It's a bit early. It's early for me. Um, So if it's early for you, I've got no sympathy. (laughs) Welcome to our first theme talk of the week. And I'd like to begin with a couple of questions. And I'd just like to invite you to raise your hand in response. How many of you dreamt last night? Well, actually, all your hands should be up because the next question is, perhaps I should ask, how many of you remember dreaming and remember your dreams from last night? A few of you. And if you did remember them, how many of you jumped out of bed before breakfast and wrote your dream down? Shame on you. Got some work to do. Okay, and how many of you told your dream to someone else? Perhaps over breakfast, uh, or, you know, to your partner. Okay, so one person. Okay, so we've got some work to do on on capturing our night dreams. And I'm wondering how you respond to someone who tries to tell you their night dream, perhaps over breakfast. Do you respond like this? (coughs) Do you know what I dreamt last night? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. She's going to tell me her dream. Yawn, yawn. Or do you respond, wow, how interesting. Maybe you dismiss night dreams as a result of eating too much cheese or the random firings of the brain. Or perhaps you take them seriously and think the messages are worth listening to. Well, I hope by the end of the talk, perhaps you'll all see them that way. And I've got a story about a dream, and it's probably one you all know, you've probably heard before, but I, I think it's, you can't have um, a week about dreams without this story. So once upon a time, there was a tinker, and he lived with his wife and children in a village called Swatham in Norfolk. Oh, yeah, we have a few people that know it. And the tinker worked very hard tinkering, or whatever it is that tinkers do. <laughs> Later. <laughs> and, um, but never had enough money and he lived um, with his wife and children in a little tumbled down cottage and in the garden was a very old but beautiful sycamore tree and after his in the middle of his long days of tinkering he'd sometimes get so exhausted he'd just go out for a quick nap under the tree just for a few minutes breather um, and one day he went under his tree had a quick nap and he had a strange dream and he just shook it off. The next day, tired from work, he went out, had another quick nap. Another, the same dream, again, just shook it off. Third day running, a quick nap. His wife was watching, getting a bit cross about all these naps. Um, the third not day, she'd had enough, and she came out and said, what are you doing? We've got no money. Barely enough to feed the children, and there you are, idling away, sleeping in the middle of the day. 
And he said, don't worry, my dear. I've had a fantastic dream three nights running. And in my dream, a voice told me to go to London Bridge, where I would meet a man who would change my fortune. And his wife just yelled at him. What a load of nonsense. Who takes their dreams seriously? Now get back to tinkering, get back to work. She was a bit of a nag. (laughs) But the tinker couldn't get the dream out of his mind. So early the next day, the first light of dawn, he packed a bag and snuck off and started the journey to London, walking. took him a few days and he arrived in London, went to London Bridge And the first day, he just walked up and down the bridge. And he'd been told there's going to be a man that's going to change my fortune. And he was looking at everyone thinking, is it you? Is it that man over there? And nobody spoke to him. And at the end of the first day, he lay down on the pavement, cold, woke up. Next day, walked up and down the bridge. Nobody spoke to him. Slept on the pavement. Third day... He was getting a bit despondent. He was tired and cold and hungry, and he thought, maybe my wife was right. Dreams are just nonsense. I need to go back home. And just then, some boys came rushing past him, bumped into him, grabbed his bag and ran off. He was in despair. He sat on the pavement and thought, I had very little money to begin with. Now I have nothing. I'm going home. And just at that point, a voice um, spoke to him and said, Excuse me, I've been watching you. It was one of the shopkeepers on the bridge. The bridge at that time had shops. I've been watching you. Three days you've been walking up and down. What are you doing that for? And the tinker startled, look at him, and thought, maybe this is the man. And he said, told him his dream. And the shopkeeper looked at him and said, don't be silly. Who listens to their dreams? Who takes them seriously? He said, why? Last night I had a dream that told me that if I went to a cottage, little tumble-down cottage, with a sycamore tree in the garden and dug under the tree, I'd find some treasure. But what a load of nonsense. I'm not going to go searching for that treasure (laughs) on the basis of a dream. (laughs) And on hearing this, the tinker went a bit pale. And he said, where was this tumble-down cottage? Oh, said the shopkeeper, it was in a... Oh, Swaffy, Swoofy, <laughs> Swaffham. Stupid name. What a stupid name for a place. Sorry. If you're <laughs> I don't even think such a place exists. And the tinker went an even whiter shade of pale, <laughs> mumbled a quick thank you without saying anything else, started running as fast as he could home. A few days later, very tired and very hungry, he got back to find his wife standing out there looking very cross outside the cottage. Where do you think you've been? While you've been idling away, chasing your dreams, I've been trying to feed our hungry children on fresh air. And the tinker said nothing. He just went to the garden shed, got a spade, went to the tree, and he started digging down the roots of the tree. And he dug... And when there was a hole, oh, well, you know what I've got? I, I sellotaped. <laughs> yeah, no, no, they, they didn't have sellotape in those days. This was to stop the precious. Ju- we'll let Michael. So with his wife and children cooking a gog, see about that thing about the failures, there you go. And inside, precious jewels. And of course, it changed the tinker's life. He no longer had to tinker and he could live comfortably. Well... Is the story true? Well, I think if you go to the village in Swaffham in Norfolk, you'll find a memorial to a 15th century man called John Chapman who did become suddenly rich and contributed generously to the church. And this is the story that's grown up around him. But it's a story you'll find in lots of different versions all over the world. So it's probably a folk tale. But who cares? Because symbolically, it's still true. And the point being that the treasure we seek is to be found where we are inside us 
not some far distant place, but of course we often have to go on the journey to find that. But I'd like to tell you another dream that really did lead to a wonderful discovery. So this is a, a, a real dream. And this is the dream. I'm in Africa, fleeing from cannibals through the jungle. I cannot escape. They capture me, toss me in a huge pot of boiling water to cook me alive. As the water boils, my bonds loosen and I free my hand. And I attempt to climb out of the pot. But the natives reach over the flames and they poke me back into the cauldron with their sharp spears. That's the dream. And the dream awoke with a start. And the details that stuck in his mind was the spears. Just like to look at the spears. They had eye-shaped holes near the points. Now, does anyone know whose dream this was? Who made the sewing machine? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And do, can you remember his name? Who? Uh, well, this is where it gets complicated. Elias Howe, with the first sort of... Um, um, and he dreamt something like this in 1844. And it has to be said, different versions of the same dream, they, they change as they come down. But the point was, he did dream about these spears. And he'd been trying unsuccessfully to create the first industrial sewing machine for five years. And he just couldn't work out what, how to make it work. And as the tale goes, he fell asleep, exhausted at his workbench, and the dream provided the solution. And the key thing was, most needles, you have the hole in the blunt end. This dream told him if he put the hole in the sharp end, hey presto. And with that breakthrough, the sewing machine um, in 1845, the invention... Um, meant that the mass production of clothing became a reality, <coughs> something we've all benefited, benefited from. So a, an example of a problem-solving dream that has actually benefited the world and changed all our lives. So Elias Howe. So now we're going to have um, a hymn, and as we do so, our, our young people are going to leave for their activities. And um, we're going to sing this to a different tune than is printed in the book. You should know the tune to Thornbury. So hymn number 144, Sunrise to Freedom.
So the focus of my talk this morning is night dreams. This week we're going to be talking about all sorts of dreams, waking dreams and hopes and desires, but specifically I want to talk about dreams that come to us when we're asleep. And I'd like to share the dream of a 33-year-old woman. I'm with a group of people who are arguing about the existence of God. Some teenagers are very sceptical and insist everything can be explained by evolution. Then I'm in a room. It's very bare. Just a table. And on the table I see a butterfly that is part fossil. I'm told it's thousands of years old, but still has life in it. I'm amazed. How can it still be living? But as if to prove it, when someone touches the butterfly, its wings flutter. It seems to have gone into semi-hibernation, trapped in a room away from its natural habitat. It's closed down its system. And a discussion ensues as to whether we should give it chance to awake by setting it free. Some people say no, it won't survive outside. (coughs) The shock of the changed climate will kill it. They argue at least it has some semblance of life in the room. Others, including me, vehemently argue against this. We say how its present life trapped in a bare room unable to fly as nature intended, is a living death. It seems cruel to keep it alive in such circumstances. And I tap into the despair of the creature and sense there's nothing to lose in setting it free. If it dies, this would be no more of a tragedy than its present semi-existence. At least it would have a chance. It seems a risk worth taking. I wake up before knowing the outcome. That's the dream. Well, I was a woman who dreamt this dream 15 years ago. And it made a profound impression on me. It was one of those big dreams that seemed to come from somewhere so much deeper and bigger than than me. And I knew that the butterfly represented a part of me. Trapped in an unhappy marriage and work that did not satisfy. A part of me felt dead inside, fossilised like the butterfly. And a few months before this dream, I'd been here at summer school and I'd had an experience which had finally convinced me I needed to leave my marriage and make some big, big changes. And I'm thankful for that first summer school and the people there that helped me in this process. And after the summer school, I'd taken the first steps, but the risk felt enormous. And I wasn't sure if I could go through with these changes. In that place of transition, fearful of the future, I thought, well, perhaps it's just better to stay put. At least it's familiar. It's secure. I've got a roof over my head. If I leave, where will I go? What will I do? But this dream startled me awake. It told me in no uncertain terms I had to take a risk and give the butterfly a chance. And perhaps it's no coincidence that the Greek word for butterfly also means psyche or soul. And with the the strength that this dream gave me, but also the warning, the warning, I could have ignored it, I chose to set the butterfly that was my true self free. And I survived. And whilst it's not been plain sailing since, I did find my wings. And I'm so thankful that that dream startled me awake. But for it to have any benefit, I had to act on it. And that's the crucial point. I could have just said, that's a really weird dream, and it's nothing to do with me. Why would I dream of a fossil butterfly? Nothing to do with me. I had to own it, that it was telling me a truth about myself. Dreams can only change us if we let them. And perhaps you've had a big dream that started you awake, that's changed your life in some way. 
We're not going to have time in this session to share them, but there will be an invitation later in the week for um, other people who want to share a dream. One of those dreams that, as Emily Bronte quotes, a dream that stayed with me ever after, that's gone through me like wine through water and altered the colour of my mind. Dreams have had a huge impact on civilization from earliest times in all cultures and all religions. Dreams have inspired great works of art and literature and music. Many examples here. As you came in, Mark played for us beautifully the tune yesterday. Paul McCartney got the the tune come to him in a dream. He woke up with that tune going around his mind and he straight away got to work on the piano. It does have to be said, though, dreams don't always come out ready-cooked. The lyrics took a bit more work and apparently McCartney went round singing at first, scrambled egg, so (laughs) it needed a bit of work. (laughs) And maybe you've had scrambled egg for breakfast. Um, dreams have helped with problem solving as we've heard leading to inventions and breakthroughs in science and medicine Um, many inventions you'd be surprised um, from the discovery of the elemental table to the cure to diabetes there's again some examples there have come in dreams they've informed political decisions it has to be said for good and for ill Hitler was guided by his dreams And look where that led. But so was Lyndon Johnson. And as the Vietnam War dragged on, on the basis of his dreams and the difficult images that came, he knew he'd reached stalemate. The war needed to stop, and he chose to step down from office, which effectively ended the conflict. And Carl Jung went so far as to say, we may expect to find in dreams everything that has ever been of significance in the life of humanity. There are just so many examples. It's fair to say, though, that not all dreams are equally inspirational. I've certainly had my share of nonsense dreams, as have famous people. So the author, Dorothy Parker, woke and scribbled down a four-line poem, convinced it would prove her to be a great poet and profound thinker. And when she read back her masterpiece, it said, Hogamus, Higamus, men are polygamous. Higamus, Hogamus, woman, monogamous. Now, is that a nonsense dream or not? I'm not going to comment. Maybe she'd been betrayed in love and perhaps it said something about her view of men. And another writer, Dale... Unsen dreamt he was the greatest poet of all time and he had written one line which would reveal ultimate truth to the whole human race and he recited this one line to loud acclaim of huge audience and he scribbled it down on waking and in the cold light of day he read oh come see the deer big hearted oro (laughs) There's nothing like a dream to deflate our egos. (laughs) But while some dreams seem more significant than others, many dream experts suggest all dreams, even the nonsensical ones, have messages in them. If only we learn to understand and decode their language and not just dismiss them. And in the words of John Sanford, in dealing with thousands of dreams... I have not yet found a single aimless or meaningless one. But if this is the case, why does Western society tend to hold night dreams in such low regard? All too often the topic is met with embarrassment or silence or changing the subject if you try and tell someone their dreams. And there is a time and a place. I I agree, you can't go around telling everyone your dreams. But in everyday speech, we hear disparaging remarks. It was only a dream. Dream on. You're just a dreamer. You need to wake up. And the implication being that dreams are something no sensible people waste their time on. And perhaps you grew up with messages like that, or perhaps you've had that message 
um, from parents or other people that have sort of dampened down that curiosity about dreams. <coughs> but the point is that we all dream. Research has proved that we spend on average two hours a night in rapid eye movement sleep, which is where dreams come. In the laboratory has proved that we all go through that cycle. That amounts to six whole years of our lives in dreaming sleep, with the potential to dream well over a thousand dreams a year. Nature is proliferate with her gifts. Why? And there are many theories about why we dream and why some of us remember them easier than others. But a number of researchers suggest that dreams serve an important evolutionary function. In dreams, we can rehearse situations. Our anxiety dreams are help given us stress rehearsals for the real thing. And Derek Jensen reminds us that in terms of survival, dreams come third after air and water. If you're deprived of sleep, these cruel experiments, especially dream sleep for too long, you'll hallucinate. Dreams will just come into your waking and you'll eventually die. You can go without food for longer than you can go without sleep. And I think just the fact that this phenomena is there, it must give us some sense of what does it mean? Why do we dream? And anthropologists are in no doubt about the contribution of dreams for the cultural stability of indigenous peoples. In some Native American tribes, the first business of the day was dream sharing. So you'd have your breakfast and then you'd all gather and you'd share your dreams. And dreams were seen as belonging to the tribe. And it was a survival tool because in the depths of winter the community would look to dreamers to scout out the location of game in their dream. And to dismiss the wisdom of dreams, they thought, led to soul sickness, physical illness, and even death. And for the Sonoy tribe in central Malaysia, the ultimate outcome of any dream was to bring back a beautiful or a useful gift for the whole tribe. No, not just for yourself. For everybody. They weren't just seen as personal possessions, they were meant to be shared. So, indigenous cultures have had this wisdom, but as human society has developed, as native peoples have been colonialized over the, under the banner of progress, so communal dreaming has declined. And Jung spent time with a tribe in Uganda, Carl Jung. And he asked an old medicine man about his dreams. And the medicine man answered, with tears in his eyes, in the old days, the medicine man had dreams and knew whether there was war or sickness or where the rains would come and where the herds would be driven. But since the coming of the white man, nobody dreams anymore. And Jung concluded, the divine voice which counselled the tribe was no longer needed because the English knew better. And that, for me, has a sobering ring of truth to it. Us moderns claim to know so much. In, when we talk about science, we talk of dissecting science, of solving the last mysteries of the universe. We dissect nature in the laboratory and leave little room for wonder. And there are scientists like Francis Crick who tell us that dreams are meaningless, simply the result of the, the brain rebooting itself, a bit like a computer, just random, meaningless churnings. I don't think that tells the whole truth. And of course, science has done much good in the world, but I think we ignore more intuitive ways of knowing at our peril. And I can only speak from personal experience. I've kept dream journals for over 25 years. And I first started to listen to my dreams from necessity, I think. They were part of my healing journey. In moving from the fundamentalist faith of my childhood, dreams helped me gain a broader understanding of God 
Dreams help me to come to terms with health problems. They've warned me to slow down and listen to my body. Something I'm still not very good at. Dreams guided me through the pain of divorce and urged me to take risks in opening up to new relationships. Maybe I remember my dreams because I need to. And the psychoanalyst Alfred Adler said that very courageous people don't dream much because they deal adequately with their situation in daily life. Perhaps. Perhaps some of us need to remember our dreams more than others. I'm not sure it tells the whole story. I think perhaps we don't remember our dreams because we're not encouraged to. And dreams have become my main form of spiritual practice. I'm hopeless with meditation, even though I do it valiantly. I really struggle to switch my brain off enough. I can't stop the chatter. And the same with prayer. I can't steal my busy mind enough to shut up. And I think sleep is the only time when I shut up enough for God, the divine, to get through to me. And it may be different for you. I know talking to other people, perhaps they get these intuitions that I get in dreams in their meditation, in their waking moments. I don't. But even so, I really think that dreams are the forgotten language of the soul. And Carl Jung says... We're so captivated by and entangled in our subjective consciousness that we've forgotten the age-old fact that God speaks chiefly through dreams. And that's something that many people have said over time. And John Sanford says, Suppose there was something that spoke to you every night, tailor-made to your particular needs and life story, the offer to guide you throughout the whole of life, connect you with a source of wisdom beyond yourself, and that this support was absolutely free. Wouldn't you want to avail yourself of it? But do we? And I found this picture in a magazine. It's nothing to do with dreams, but but to me it is. Dreams are like gifts that come to us every night, all wrapped up but we need to unwrap them for them to be of any benefit. So think how many gifts are coming to us every night. So dreams can help us in our personal journeys, as I've shared, but they can also benefit the wider world, and I'd just like to give a few examples of that. John Newman, the 19th century captain of a slave ship, had a powerful dream, which was the catalyst for his conversion and the eventual abandonment of his cruel trade. It did take some years. But he claimed that this dream was the most important event in his whole life. Harriet Tubman, an escaped slave before the American Civil War, led hundreds of slaves to freedom by the Underground Railroad. She made 19 rescue trips and claimed she never lost a single slave because she acted on the wisdom and instructions that her dreams gave her, (coughs) that warned of dangers ahead. During the civil unrest in India, after the infamous Rowlett Acts ignited violent protests, Gandhi was feeling increasingly helpless. How can I promote non-violence to bring an end to this? After prayer and fasting, he had a dream instructing him to call upon all the religious groups in India to practice hartal, public prayer, at the same time. And people of all faiths took to the streets in such numbers that India was paralysed by this first general strike and the colonial government was forced to rescind the act on the basis of a dream. And perhaps you recall that story in the news last year when a mother in northern Iraq, at the last moment, pardoned the man who murdered her son. Under Sharia law, the victim's parents were meant to participate in the hanging of the killer, Balal. He was blindfolded, the noose was already round his neck, and the victim's mother, instead of pushing away the chair on which he stood, as was her right, she slapped him round the face and then pardoned him, and his blindfold was removed. 
Up to that point, the weeks leading up to the execution, the grieving mother had been determined her killer's son should hang. And it was several dreams that changed her mind. Her dead son appeared, saying he was in a good place. Don't take revenge. She couldn't accept this. She was still determined the killer would hang. Her son returned to her, and this time he refused to speak to her. He took notice. Her son was angry that she wouldn't forgive. And on the basis of those dreams, she was able to find in herself that extraordinary gesture of forgiveness. And today the concept of social dreaming is is growing. With people such as Gordon W. Gordon Lawrence, who is setting up the idea of using dreams within organisations and communities where dreams are not treated as personal possessions but are indicators of what's going on collectively. Harking back to a time when dreaming was part of everyday life where dreams were shared and not seen just as the personal possession of the individual psyche but as a cultural phenomena that can tell us something about the state of the world we live in. And he cites intriguing examples of of the sort of almost the idea of of people dreaming dreams collectively on similar themes and the example of Osama bin Laden who in the lead up to um, 9-11 became so concerned that his men, Al-Qaeda, were actually sharing dreams of planes crashing into tall buildings and he actually instructed his men to keep quiet because he was worried it would compromise his mission. But alongside that, there was also... Um, an increase in the number of Westerners dreaming of planes crashing into tall buildings before it happened. There seemed to be this um, almost tapping into some collective unconscious of of this um, tragedy waiting to happen, suggesting that somehow our dreams do have perhaps more um, impact collectively than we can ever realise. And the journalist, Charlotte Burrard, collected dreams from over 300 Germans between 1933 and 1939. And she wrote a book called The Third Reich of Dreams. And she describes how Nazi propaganda and paranoia infiltrated people's dreams. And Germans became frightened of dreaming in case they gave something away, in case they spoke something without knowing it, you know, when you speak in your sleep. And... Some found themselves dreaming in other languages. And one man said he no longer dreamt of anything except shapes because it's forbidden to dream. And Barat concluded that the fascist fascist regime controlled the dreams of the German people. And that's a sobering thought because dreams are one of the last bastions of freedom for the individual. And if we lose them, what are we left with? But what about a Unitarian take on dreams? I didn't expect to find many references within our heritage of reason and rationality, but I was surprised to find three founding fathers, Unitarians of the United States of America, took their dreams seriously. John Adams, second president, and Benjamin Rush, signatory to the Declaration of Independence, they regularly swapped dreams I'll send you a dream, you'll send me one. And they sought guidance in those dreams on political matters. Adams shared a dream about the difficulties in France, in creating democracy, (coughs) the impossibilities, so it seemed. Rush reported a dream which tempered his enthusiasm for prohibition. And Thomas Jefferson, third president... He had become estranged from Adams. They'd once been close friends, but because of political disagreements, they'd fallen out. And then in 1809, Rush sent Adams a dream containing a page from a future history of the United States. And that future history stated that Adams and Jefferson were reconciled and that they would sink into the grave nearly at the same time. This dream came through a third party and it was fulfilled. Adams and Jefferson were reconciled and intriguingly 
They did die within hours of each other on the 4th of July, 1826. And this had been predicted by their friend. Weird. But what's intriguing is that Jefferson was reunited with his friend because of a great dream. And yet, he was a deeply rational man, and his edited version of the Gospels, the Jefferson's Bible, he took out not only all reference to miracles, but of course, all reference to dreams. But they still benefited him. And Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose influence on Unitarianism was great, he took the view that however monstrous and grotesque dream apparitions are, they still have a substantial truth and we should study them for self-knowledge. And his contemporary, Henry David Thoreau, claimed that dreams are the touchstones of our characters. Our truest life is when we are in dreams awake. And there's one contemporary Unitarian Universalist who takes dreams very seriously, and he's been a huge inspiration for me, Jeremy Taylor ordained minister, author of several books. And he gives the example of a community project that he was involved in, in Emmyville in California in 1969. And in response to the racially motivated murder of Unitarian seminary student James Reeb, or Martin Luther King's March for Justice, there'd been an attempt to bring the black community together with the white community. But attempts had failed because although the white people were on a conscious level deeply committed to eradicating racial prejudice, on an unconscious level they did exhibit condescending racist attitudes and it had inflamed the resentment of the black people. The project had fizzled out. Taylor came in to see if he could get some reconciliation, but he worked initially just with the white volunteers. Talking about it was hopeless. Then he had the idea, in desperation, let's talk about our night dreams, particularly those with racial content. And he encouraged people to own and take responsibility for their dream characters. So if they dreamed of menacing gang of black youths prowling through my dream, what's that saying about me? What's that saying about my own unconscious racist um, attitudes? And working in this way transformed the volunteers. They were able to reconnect with the black community who responded wholeheartedly to this new conscious awareness. And Taylor asked the question, if blundering around, simply sharing dreams without any clear idea of what we're doing can have this effect, a noticeable impact on the unconscious sources of racism, what else can it do? And 46 years on, he's still exploring that question. And he works with dreams in churches, seminaries, hospitals and prisons. And he claims that working with dreams is a deeply radical act because it gets to the root of things, radix, the root of things. And he also says that every dream has many levels. It says something about the dreamer and something about society. And the example of Elias Howe, on the basic level, it led to a wonderful invention. But think of the imagery. Cannibals in Africa. I'm being cooked in a pot. I'm sure there's many cultural assumptions of his age that came up in that dream. People from Africa are primitive and dangerous. And perhaps it also says something about his own neurosis and anxiety. I'm being cooked alive. So dreams are both personal and they also have a collective message. I've said a lot and we're going to have a short pause for you to stretch, to stand if you want to, just move gently. I'd ask you not to start talking. We're going to hear um, a song another song by Paul McCartney that was inspired by a dream. And this song came when McCartney was at a low ebb from drug misuse. The Beatles band was on the verge of breakup and he fell into a troubled sleep and he dreamt that his mother, called Mary, came to him with these words. 
It's all right. It'll be all right. And when he woke up, it prompted him to write, let it be. So Mary was his mum's name. But of course, as a mother of Jesus, she's a universal figure of comfort. So let's hear, let it be. And please feel free to sort of just gently move around as you need to. Dreams always tell us the truth. Nine years ago, I dreamt the following. In a dream landscape, I come across a tree with branches made of ice or glass crystal. And hanging from the branches are seeds from the plant honesty. In the dream, I remind myself of the need to remember this sight. It feels like a gift to bring back into waking life. When I reflected on this dream, I recognised the frozen parts of myself, the frozen feelings that I hadn't acknowledged, that I needed to acknowledge, to thaw. And I was intrigued by the tree actually having the seeds of honesty, literally the seeds of honesty. And this dream stayed with me, and a few years after, we were on holiday in Wales and we passed a glass blowing studio that was wonderfully named the Glass Blobbery. <laughs> and we visited it, and I had the idea, rather crazy idea, I want to have a glass tree made to honour this dream. And the glass blower asked me why I wanted a glass tree, and I just mumbled something about an art project. And he was very pushy. He said, no, why? Why? Finally, I sort of mumbled something about a dream. I'm not sure he got it, but being honest was part of the process of honouring this dream. I got home with my glass tree, and then I had to search for honesty seeds. I phoned florists and garden centres, but nowhere stocked them. One florist hadn't even heard of honesty. (laughs) Others said honesty was a weed, or too old-fashioned to bother with. It seems there was no honesty in Guildford, where I (laughs) live. And then a chance phone call with my sister led me to honesty seeds in her garden. This felt significant. My sister holds very different spiritual views to me. And sharing this dream, and I did share it with her, brought us closer together. So I assembled my tree, and I wanted to cut off the points. They have little points on them, the seeds. Don't like sharp points, but that's the point. (laughs) But honesty, sometimes the truth can hurt. And my tree was a visual reminder of the need both to honour my dreams and be honest with what came up in them. And the tree sat safely on a shelf until we moved house seven years ago when it got knocked and broken. And I just put it in a box and forgot about it. So for seven years, it's laying in a box until I dug it out a few weeks ago and I thought, oh, can I glue it together? Not really. I've tried. It's a bit battered, but it stands once more as an outward reminder of my commitment to the dream world. Because dreams are not all sweetness and light. In fact, research suggests it's more common to have unpleasant dreams And perhaps that's why people don't remember them. We think, oh, everyone, you know, I'm talking about all these wonderful dreams, but actually I've had my fair share of shite dreams. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) But even these dreams come in the service of wholeness. They exaggerate to get our attention. The nightmare startles us awake. It's trying to say something. People with post-traumatic stress disorder, they dream of the traumatic event again and again and again until it's worked through. Dreams show us what needs attention, the unacknowledged parts of ourselves, the shadow, as Jung calls it, the part that cheats and lies and steals and, God forbid, has murderous thoughts. And it's common for nice people who never outwardly express anger to dream murderous thoughts. Dreams are compensating, they're bringing us into balance, or trying to. And if we don't integrate those shadow parts, of course we project them onto others. And let's not forget the positive qualities, the gold that also lies within the shadow. We may be less reasonable and less decent in our dreams, 
but we're also sometimes more intelligent and wiser and more capable than we think of ourselves in waking life. So when we have a dream, perhaps to see each symbol, each aspect of the dream as a part of us, each character, each animal, each object, a part we need to acknowledge. We dream of the person we can't stand and we think, oh, it's actually, it's all about them, but actually, what part of them is in us? And the starved dog, what part of us are we neglecting? The princess, perhaps we're far more majestic than we really realise. The dustbin, all of those murky bits and pieces. The priceless heirloom, are we that? And Jung believed that if enough people were able to integrate the conflict within themselves through attending to their dreams, humanity could avoid disaster. That's a bold claim. But who knows? Another dream a few months ago. I see the results of an experiment on a computer screen. And it shows in visual form the effects of chaos and noise on living creatures including humans. If you expose a creature to meaningless noise and chatter and the stress day in, day out, this breaks up the creature's life force and energy patterns. I'm shown beautiful harmonious patterns in the energy field of a healthy creature. Then I'm shown the disordered and chaotic patterns in a creature exposed to constant chaos and noise. The patterns are haywire, a tangled mass. I then see a creature that has died because of such exposure. I'm shocked and saddened. That dream startled me awake and it stayed with me for days. On one level, I know it says something about my own vulnerability to too much noise and stress. I do feel haywire if I have too much noise and stress. But I don't think I'm alone in this. I know I'm not alone in this. I know this dream is also a reflection of our technological age with its incessant speed and noise and media bombardment that is harming us. I really think it's harming our psyches and, of course, it's harming the planet because what do we do with our technology? We destroy the environment. And I recently came across a book by the radical environmentalist and activist Derek Jensen, a weighty tome. It's filled with his own dreams and also essays on the plight of the planet. It's hard reading. It's shocking. It's not an easy read. His dreams are filled with polluted rivers, extinct species, powerful men in suits controlling the world. Some would say his dreams are paranoid expressions of his own disease. Or maybe he's bringing to consciousness what it's difficult for us to acknowledge. Perhaps he's the canary sent down the coal mine. The canaries were sent down and provided an early warning system that it's not safe here. And perhaps he's providing an early warning system about the dangers we face unless we clean up our act. And Jeremy Taylor would agree. He writes, we can no longer afford to be unconscious about the consequences of our technological developments or the nature of the energies that motivate our deepest creative or destructive potential. And he says that working with dreams and other activities that bring us into contact with this deeper collective unconscious is no longer just a playful, voluntary activity for creative people, it has become an absolute necessity for planetary survival. These are big claims. But another story about perhaps there's truth in it. Stephen Azenstance, a therapist, tells of a man called um, Ian, who had a reoccurring nightmare of a deserted ghost town, a village abandoned... And in the village square, he saw a little dilapidated cathedral abandoned. And whenever he saw the cathedral, he heard the sound of an old woman wailing in despair. And he tried for years 
to get relief from this nightmare. He went to conventional therapy and they explored how the dream represented his own life situation or what part of you is that abandoned cathedral and that deserted ghost town. But he still had the nightmare. It didn't get rid of it. He tried Jungian therapy and he was looking at the more sort of archetypal spiritual angles of what part of the cathedral, your spiritual life. The nightmare continued. So he came to um, Asenstanz, um, who worked in a different way with dreams, in desperation. And in their work together, Ian had the realisation that the village he dreamt of was an actual place. It triggered a memory. It was a place in Mexico where his grandmother had lived. And Ian had been there only once as a child to see his grandmother just before she died. But he thought, well, why this dream now? And what does it want of me? And he thought, what if the dream is saying something about the actual village that needs attention? It's not about me, it's about the village. He tracked down the village and travelled there, and it had become a small town. And he was surprised that people recognised him and they started telling him stories about his grandmother. Then he heard that part of the town was scheduled to be bulldozed and replaced by a resort development. And the townsfolk expressed concern their little cathedral would be destroyed. And Ian had this wake-up moment of realising that perhaps the meaning of the nightmare was actually the village sending out a distress call. Perhaps the wailing woman was his deceased grandmother beckoning him across time and space. He took action against the proposed development, using his skills as a lawyer, and he provided resources to repair the little broken-down cathedral, which still stands to this day. And I find that a very powerful story of how a dream can be saying something in the outer world that can lead someone to activism, dream activism. And it brings in all sorts of strange ideas that perhaps the rational side of us as Unitarians, you know, dead grandmother speaking across time and space. But dreams are mysterious. There are things we can't explain. And that dream's a powerful example of that. And we think that dreams belong just to us, the dreamer. But perhaps they simply come through us, seeking willing hosts who will listen. Perhaps they do. They're sort of there. Who will actually be? A li- who can I actually um, channel this through? And perhaps dreams are meant to have a wider audience for their work. And I've been moved and comforted by dreams not my own. I've read other people's accounts, and it's like it's been a gift to me. So even if you don't remember your own dreams, if you read the dreams of other people, you can draw comfort. Dreams such as this one by a woman who had been through intense suffering. I dreamt that I was sad and alone. And God said to me, cover yourself with this coverlet and you will be comforted. And the coverlet was like a brocade, still life. A rich tapestry of fruits and flowers, very dark, and it made me warm and comforted at once. Freud would call this a wish fulfillment dream, a yearning to return to the womb. And I say, who cares? It brought much needed solace to the dreamer, and it brings solace to me. And we all need sometimes a rich brocade. Coverlet with tapestries of fruit and flowers to wrap ourselves in. We can take somebody else's dream and benefit from it. Dreams can comfort us and they can warn us. Robert Moss, another pioneering dream worker, gives an intriguing example of how dreams can save lives. When the tsunami hit in December 2004... The Andamans, a hunter-gatherer people, living in fishing settlements off the Bay of Bengal, were thought to have drowned because their shelters were destroyed. But the Andamans reappeared on the forested hills, claiming to know the tsunami was coming. And they knew because they followed the movement of animals and listened to the voices of the weather and because they travelled on the web of dreams. 
Perhaps dreams really can link us to a deeper, intuitive sense of knowing that we've lost in the West and we need to reclaim. And this week, I'm inviting you to attend to your night dreams, to be curious, even if you don't normally give them any attention. If you wake up with just a fragment, see if you can bring an attitude of curiosity to them and not just dismiss them. But dreams are shy animals and they need our encouragement. You've got to roll out the the welcome mat. And you do need to record them. (coughs) Because have you ever had that experience? You've woken with a wonderful dream. Oh, I'll remember it in the morning. You go back to sleep and, of course, you can't remember a thing. Learn from Coleridge. So the story goes. I'm sure it's been embellished. But Kubla Khan came in a dream, writing it up. And, goddammit, the man from Porlock walks in interrupts him and the ending was lost and if you're serious about working with dreams don't just attend to the big juicy ones welcome the tiny little fragments too and Jeremy Taylor gives a wonderful example of working with a fragment which I don't have time to go into but a tiny fragment somebody oh I, I just think there were some pastel colours in my dream that was the dream that's all he had to work with And it was a very powerful experience of working with that tiny fragment. And I can tell you more about it later. And another practical tip on working with dreams. If you are interested in working with them, bring them into waking world. Record them. See what meaning you can elucidate. And then do something with them. Create a piece of artwork. I I love using collage. For me, collage is the way of bringing my dreams to life. Um, Write a poem, write a story, or take some action in the outer world. If you dream of flowers, go outside and plant some seeds. As you watch them grow outwardly, be attentive to your inner growth. If you dream of an ill-treated animal, this may represent a part of you, but you can also make a donation to an animal charity. And years ago, I had a disturbing dream with cage upon cage of half-dead chickens crammed into the kitchen of the church I grew up in. I knew the dream says something about my lack of freedom that I felt as a child in the church, but it also says something about the appalling conditions that battery hens are kept in. And in the dream, I was so shocked, it prompted a commitment that I would only ever eat free-range eggs an example of a dream that's both inner and outer. So however challenging we find the concept of working with dreams as Unitarians in our history of reason and rationality, let's remember that the mind doesn't just include the logical, rational, linear aspects, but also the intuition, the dreams and the emotions that are too often devalued. And of course we need our conscious, rational mind to interpret and deal with dreams because let's not forget that people have done awful things on the basis of their dreams. I don't want to paint a lopsided picture. People who have interpreted their dreams too literally have become megalomaniacs. Of course we need to be discriminatory. And Jeremy Taylor makes the claim that dream work is real church. That's challenging. Where do we ever see dream work in our spiritual communities? Have you ever been to a dream-sharing group? How might this translate into our movement? I don't know. But what I do know is that our movement is facing many challenges. We're at a crossroads. I don't know if we have a viable future, but what I do know is that we can't save our movement alone by relying on strategic plans and growth agendas. We do need to use our conscious, rational minds, but I think we also need to tap in those deeper, intuitive sources of wisdom to guide us. And there's a Navajo story that says, near the beginning of the world, the hero twins travelled the earth slaying monsters and they came to attack the demon fatigue. And he begs them to spare him, saying... If you kill me, people won't get tired. And if they don't get tired, they won't sleep. And if they don't sleep, they won't dream. 
And if they don't dream, how will they stay connected to the spiritual world? So the hero twins let fatigue live. Some of us think it would be far more productive if we never had to sleep and get tired. I think that sometimes. My to-do list, I can't afford to rest and sleep. But actually, those extra eight hours that we might actually achieve more in the world, think what we're missing out on. So I say thank God for sleep. And the etymology of the word dream from the Middle English, drem, meaning joy and music. And in ancient Egypt, it means awakening. And in Hebrew, it means healthy and strong. Maybe we really can dream our way to a better world. And I'm nearly done. Anthony Stevens insists that to work on dreams is not a petty form of self-indulgence, but a spiritual ritual of cultural and ecological significance. Because the more conscious we become as individuals, the more hope there is for our tiny portion of the universe. And he goes on to say, we must heed Liam Hudson's warning that dreams are our last wilderness, to be protected with the same fervour as the rainforests, the ozone layer and whales, as the only natural oasis of spiritual vitality left to us, Dreams are among our most precious possessions and we must stand up to those who would diminish the value we place on them. Jensen, in his book filled with so many awful nightmares and dreams, ends his book with this dream. I was speaking with an American Indian man. He was very old I was crying over the murder of the planet. He hugged me and said, the worst will not happen. The world will recover. But Jensen stresses that any solace gained in dreams like that, any comfort we draw on them, shouldn't lull us into inaction. We entrust ourselves to the wisdom of the dream. We entrust ourselves to the strength and the power of the dream giver. And then we do all we can in the waking world to make it a reality. And I end with the words of Rumi. There is an inner wakefulness that directs the dream and that will eventually startle us back to the truth of who we are. Thank you for listening.